0: This week, Valeris RCF agent City objects to debtor's proposed dip, Townsports files for Chapter 11, LSC Communications announces stock and asset purchase agreement with Atlas Holdings, and as always, updates from Puerto Rico.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Reorg podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in high yield, distressed debt, and bankruptcy. I'm Connor Skelding.
0: And I'm Raksha Manjanath. Later this episode, Jim Holloway and Kevin Eckhart discuss commercial real estate and REITs, including CBL. It's Sunday, September 20th.
1: Valaris RCF agent Citibank filed an objection on Monday evening to the debtor's proposed $500 million term loan dip facility, arguing that the debtors, quote, have no demonstrable financing need during 2020, and quote, failed to use sound business judgment in selecting the term dip provided by RSA parties, over a less expensive revolving DIP facility offered by the RCF parties. city asserted that since the facility is, quote, inextricably intertwined with the restructuring transactions contemplated by the RSA, the DIP is an impermissible sub-ROSA plan. The term DIP, quote, should not be approved because it is not the best debtor-in-possession facility that the debtors have available in order to achieve their goals, the objection says. The objection discloses that, quote, after the petition date, City offered the debtors revised terms on the revolving dip facility and an exit RCF. According to the objection, the debtors rejected the modified proposal via a september fourth letter quote, based upon the facts that they already paid the inflated upfront fee and that the ad hoc dip term facility will preserve the RSA and related exit financing. The objection says that the debtors also rejected a five hundred million dollar exit RCF proposal offered by City, which City said was quote, substantially less expensive. Separately, the rig contractor announced that holders of 72% in aggregate principal amount of its senior notes executed the RSA and backstop agreement prior to the Tuesday expiration of the joinder period.
0: Middle market gym operator Townsports International LLC on Monday morning filed for Chapter 11 in Delaware stating it was unable to service its senior secured debt faced, quote, near-term liquidity issues and required the, quote, influx of capital to maintain operations and transition back to normal operations after the COVID-19 pandemic forced the closure of all its fitness clubs in mid-March. The debtors entered Chapter 11 with, quote, interest in a going concern sale for their businesses from two separate groups of prepetition lenders, as well as two competing dip proposals, one from Kennedy Lewis Investment Management and another from an ad hoc lender group represented by Gibson Dunn and Tacit Capital. At a first-day hearing on September 16th, Judge Christopher Sanchi granted all re- requested first-day relief, which did not include dip financing. The debtors at that hearing also told the court about a settlement term sheet with the ad hoc lender group and tacit capital on consent to use of cash collateral on a bridge basis and on the general terms of the dip financing and stocking horse credit bid. The debtors did not seek approval of the settlement term sheet at the first day hearing, adding that they are working on the dip financing and bid procedures to be filed. General terms of the settlement previewed by the debtors include an upsized $20 million dip from TACIT and limiting the ability of TACIT, which is agreed to be the stocking horse, to credit bid to $85 million. Counsel for Kennedy-Lewis Investment Management, the second party that had provided a proposal, said that it believes that it will be supportive of the tacit ad hoc group transaction and is primarily concerned with ensuring that the company continues as a going concern. With respect to a sale, Judge Sanchi said he is very troubled by the sale timeline for a company that has not previously been shopped and is very interested in what any official unsecured committee of creditors will say about the timeline.
1: LSC Communications Inc. announced Tuesday morning that it has entered into a stock and asset purchase agreement with an affiliate of Atlas Holdings LLC, supported by certain secured creditors. Under the terms, Atlas and the creditors would acquire substantially all of the debtor's assets as a going concern through a combination of cash, a credit bit of obligations under LSC's secured term loan facility, and senior secured notes in an aggregate amount equal to roughly $63 million, and the assumption of certain liabilities, including pension obligations. The transaction is expected to close during the fourth quarter of 2020. The debtors say they determined the Atlas bid as the highest and best, designated Atlas as the stalking Horse bidder, and canceled an auction approved in early June. At a Tuesday status conference, Brian Gluckstein of Sullivan and Cromwell, counsel to the debtors, stated, quote, with this deal now signed, the focus is on recoveries for general unsecured creditors and hopefully bringing the committee on board to have a global consensus on this transaction. But the debtors understand that there is still work to be done in that regard. Gluckstein reassured the court that the debtors would continue working with the committee in an attempt to reach such consensus. In terms of timing, if the debtors are able to get the UCC on board with the Atlas sale by September 21st, the sale hearing would proceed on Tuesday, September 22nd. If an agreement with the UCC is not reached, then the September 22nd hearing would serve as a status conference. Frank Morola, of Struck, counsel to the UCC, Stressed that although the UCC, quote, welcomes the opportunity for a going concern transaction, it is concerned that the transaction, quote, proposes to determine winners and losers through allocations of value, and at least initially appears to disproportionately treat the deficiency claims of the secured lenders versus the general unsecured creditors. Merle has stressed that although the UCC is, quote, not interested in jeopardizing this transaction, the committee's fiduciary duties require that it ensure there is rateable and equal treatment of those claims.
0: During Wednesday's omnibus hearing, Judge Laura Taylor-Swain denied without prejudice the Official Committee of Unsecured Creditors' general obligation bond priority stay relief motion, ruling that the stay would remain in place until at least March 2021. Judge Swain said that the UCC's assertion that the settlement underlying the Commonwealth plan is, quote, long gone, is refuted by the Promesa Oversight Board's assurances that negotiations on an amended deal are ongoing. That negotiations persist refutes the notion that no modified agreement can ever be reached and the court declines to declare dead at this juncture, a strategy that may still have vitality, Judge Swain said. On Tuesday, Governor Wanda Vasquez announced a special legislative session to consider more than two dozen bills, including measures to tighten control on government contracting, allow the Puerto Rico Treasury Department to make loans to cash-strapped agencies, and spin off the Commonwealth's Public Broadcasting Corporation. The special session runs from September 16th to October 5th and includes 26 new and refiled bills, 28 judicial nominations and 38 prosecutor nominations. Under one measure, Treasury could make loans to government entities that are facing liquidity problems amid the COVID-19 pandemic. On Wednesday, the Puerto Rico Fiscal Agency and Financial Advisory Authority released a draft preliminary offering statement and transaction roadshow materials regarding Commonwealth plans to issue just under $250 million in new bonds as part of efforts to refinance the $300 million outstanding Puerto Rico Housing Finance Authority debt. Goldman Sachs is the lead manager on the deal, and JP Morgan and Popular Securities are co managers. Pricing is slated for the week of September 28th, with closing set for the week of October 12th, according to the Roadshow materials. The new bonds will have the same maturity dates as the prior bonds, which span from 2020 through 2027, and will, quote, significantly reduce annual debt service, the documents indicate.
1: Other top stories last week were Garrett Motion bondholders organized with ropes and gray to prepare for discussions on strategic alternatives. Trimark recapitalization executed on non pro rata basis with majority first lien term lenders, including Oak Tree, says transaction authorized under credit facilities. Minority first lien term lenders evaluate options, including litigation. Vine Oil and Gas faces November maturities of $150 million super priority, $350 million first lien RBL facilities amid cash burn, liquidity projected at $150 to $160 million at year end. Sponsor Blackstone takes $30 million dividend subsequent to quarter two
0: next here's Jim with the week ahead.
1: Well, thank you Raksha and hello everyone. Greetings from Houston where it's a brutal 80
2: degrees. Welcome to the podcast and the working week to come. Make sure you see our weekly forward for a granular level of detail into everything in consequence to those of us in this very interesting line of work. And so to begin, Monday, September 21st, omnibus hearings in Southland in Ascensa. Tuesday, September 22nd, DS hearing in Chesapeake, omnibus hearing in PG&E. Under blood red sky, one assumes a status hearing in Neiman and a trial in Travelport. Wednesday, September 23rd, second day hearing in TNT Crane. TNT happens to be my daughter's favorite ACDC song. She's 10, prefers Led Zeppelin to Taylor Swift. Very proud of her. Board and Dairy, there's an omnibus hearing. Omnibus hearing also in California Resources and a combined DS confirmation hearing in McClatchy. Thursday, September 23rd, oral arguments in Malin Croat versus HHS. Omnibus hearing in Dean Foods and Rite Aid Reports earned earnings and friday september 24th another week for the books omnibus hearing in windstream and a status conference in extraction and that's all from me now i'm going to pass it over to myself and my friend and colleague kevin eckhart the theme of our discourse will be commercial real estate and reits in a time of pandemic Well, hello, everybody. I'm back and welcome to the most compelling segment of the most interesting half hour in the podcast ether, which is, of course, Reorg's deep dive into a topic that's murdering sleep for those that borrow and those for lend. Now, as Calvin Coolidge once said, the business of America is business. If that's the case, then our patriotic duty is to consume, and it follows from this that the temple of American civil religion are the shopping malls that bloom across major highway exchanges and thoroughfares in this fair land of freedom. Of course, the mall experience requires a certain proximity to your fellow consumer, which is a definite no-no in this pandemic period. Kevin Eckhart, Juris Doctor, guess I'm a bad American, but I ain't been into the Houston Galleria since I've been here, so I'm unable to provide any observations with respect to this. But can you tell us what effects the COVID-19 pandemic and surge in retail Chapter 11s have had on commercial landlords?
3: The worst hit, uh, Jim, have been retail landlords, Simon Property Group, Federal Realty, Washington Prime, CBL, that group. The big issue is that even retailers and restaurants that aren't in bankruptcy have stopped making rent payments during the shutdown. And those that are in bankruptcy, like J. Crew, Forever 21, 24-Hour, Pier 1, have secured court orders allowing them to stop making rent payments, even though back in 2005, gallery ice skating legend George W. Bush signed code amendments designed to make sure these landlords get paid. These tenants are also generally stopping uh, the reimbursement of landlords for taxes, maintenance, utilities, and other triple net lease charges, meaning landlords are not only getting not, not getting paid rent, but they also have to go out of pocket on these expenses. Even worse, in many cases, landlords have been cudgeled into accepting less than full payment for their rent and expense reimbursement claims to confirmation, even though the code gives them priority status meant to ensure full payment before a plan is firm. Over the past six months, we've seen landlords counsel, quick shout out to Ivan Gold at Alan Matkins, the tireless landlord's advocate, aggressively arguing against these rent and expense holidays in bankruptcy court. The landlords have pointed out rightly that they are on the same priority level under the code as professionals, and it doesn't make sense that they get stiffed while debtors counsel and bankers get paid every month. But the bankruptcy judges in Houston and Richmond handling most of these cases just ain't hearing it. Despite some heated rhetoric from Ivan and the other defenders of the food court, none of the landlords have gone so far yet as to argue that their solvency or survival is at stake if they don't get rent reimbursement.
2: Well, Kevin, now I do know that one of these landlords, CBL, whose website promises that they continue to evolve with the demands of today's consumer, has warned of a potential bankruptcy filing. But unless I'm missing something, we've not seen more restructuring action on the landlord side. Why not?
3: Jim, the the only large REAP to file in modern times during the the live ball bankruptcy era has been general growth, uh, which went through a restructuring and ended up owned by Brookfield, Pushing Square, and Fairholm. Um, GGP filed, however, due to a liquidity crunch, it was able to refinance property level debt, which, which I'll explain a little more in a second, but not short term secured corporate debt due to the collapse in the credit markets in 2008. Um, there's a few reasons that, that more REITs haven't filed for bankruptcy. Generally speaking, due to the advantageous tax, tax, pass-through tax treatment of REIT equity investments, these entities did not have crushing debt burdens. Uh, of course, these debt burdens can get crushing real quick when tenants stop paying rent or close down en mass, and you're paying for all the taxes and maintenance. So we'll see if this factor turns red soon. Under the Internal Revenue Code, another issue is that REITs must pay dividends in order to retain their favorable pass-through tax treatment. And that might not be possible in Chapter 11, where equity holders generally get paid last and don't get any kind of payments during the case. It'll be interesting when one of these uh, REITs files and asks for the OK to send payments to shareholders. Even your man, Judge Jones in Houston, might have to stop and think about that. Also, REITs tend to have complicated organizational structures with special purpose entities owning individual properties and having their own secured and unsecured creditors. This makes a consensual restructuring uh, more difficult to secure since you've got hold co and uh, property lenders with different collateral and different priorities, not to mention property lenders on good malls. Uh, think tourists taking selfies in front of the Louis Vuitton store and those whose collateral is an empty strip center in Plano with the Metroplex's worst Tom thumb. Finally, you've got a value problem with the collateral here. Malls um, aren't exactly trading up on the secondary market, and secured lenders don't want the keys, so they've been willing to extend and pretend rather than force the issue. Um, in the past, real estate was often considered too valuable to run through Chapter Eleven, and now uh, this kind of real estate may be too she- too cheap. Of course, bankruptcy could help address some of these problems. Uh, outside of bankruptcy, it can be hard for a hold co lender to re- to refinance or restructure. Uh, because often they'll want guarantees from and liens on the assets of those property entities, uh, the individual entities that own the malls. If you take a look at the TUSA case, and TUSA was not a retail debtor, but they were a, a property developer, um, the debtor refinanced existing hold code debt outside of bankruptcy using guarantees and liens on individual real estate developments, um, the little Del Boca Vistas here and there in Florida and elsewhere that were the debtor's real assets. After the company filed, a judge in Fort Lauderdale avoided the refinancing as a fraudulent transfer, concluding that the individual developments did not receive value from the refi. All the guarantees, liens and payments had to be reversed. um, And the lenders who were refinanced out ended up with a judgment against them for hundreds of millions of dollars. Had the debtors and lenders done that refinancing through a dip or exit financing in a chapter 11, they would have been home free Uh, In general growth that was one of the original prop propositions for dip financing, but because of competition, they ended up getting dip financing that did not require guarantees or liens on the SBEs. But the ability to to perhaps get those liens and guarantees um, could be a real factor in encouraging REITs to file for bankruptcy due to these operational issues.
2: Well, thank you, Kevin. And now can you walk us through some of the other issues that could crop up in a retail or commercial REIT chapter 11?
3: Yeah, Jim, uh, putting aside these sort of financing and structural issues, um, we all know bankruptcy can have a number of impacts on leases. And when you drill down the landlord's main asset here and the the debtor's main asset is the leases with tenants. In bankruptcy, a debtor can reject, assume, or assume and assign these leases. It seems unlikely landlord debtors would want to reject individual leases with paying tenants, but they might want to reject whole malls of properties so they can be sold as plain old commercial property or repurposed. But the code protects these tenants from ejection based on rejection. If the debtor rejects the leases, the tenant can stay until the end of the lease. Uh, you could see the same kind of rent control dilemma here in New York City, that where the property is more valuable than the building or use, but the tenants won't leave, and the debtors may have to pay them to get out or use the usual New York City tactics and shut off the hot water and electricity. To assume or assume and assign leases to a purchaser, the debtors would have to provide tenants with adequate assurance of future performance that they or a buyer will continue to honor tenant mix obligations, clean the pennies out of the fountain and the food court make scheduled improvements. Uh, tenant mix is becoming a difficult issue for landlords because as retailers file and seek to avoid tenant mix restrictions and bankruptcy, the landlord loses control. Something that's uh, dramatically illustrated in the Transform Whole Co. Mall of America dispute where Transform is trying to rent a space that the mall would rather give away to an anchor. Uh, the adequate assurance requirement gives even more power to the tenants in a lopsided bankruptcy system that is really stacked against landlords right now.
2: So back to CBL, how exactly are they evolving in this environment?
3: Well, CBL is interesting. It's really uh, the first to file because it has a relatively high leverage ratio and it, it tends to have malls and centers that are considered less desirable, not the, the luxury malls in the town center kind of places that people are, are going to right now. Um, what's also interesting about CBL is even though this, they really are confronting a difficult operational situation, unlike general growth, um, like general growth, they're trying to go through a purely financial hold co-restructuring. So on August 19th, CBL announced it has entered into an RSA with holders 57% of about $1.4 billion in unsecured notes that contemplates a Chapter 11 filing by October 1st. Under the RSA, note holders would receive 90% of reorganized equity and 500 million in 10% secured notes. Preferred and common interest, common interest holders and secured creditors would receive something. Uh, but it's not yet clear what the RSA basically leaves the the blanks for how they're going to be treated. Property level secured lenders at those special purpose entities would keep getting paid and the malls themselves would stay out of the case. Uh, this means the debtors will avoid those lease issues we were discussing while still getting the benefit of court approval for the restructuring and avoiding the twos of fraudulent transfer scenario if they wanted to do this out of court. Um, of course, it doesn't really address the operational issues that the debtors is facing uh, with tenants leaving and malls that may not be uh, viable anymore. If REITs need to file, this is the path they're going to try to follow, but I don't know if it's going to be possible for all of them to go through purely financial restructurings without addressing some of these operational issues.
2: Well alrighty then Kevin, most illuminating. I sure learned a lot, and I'm sure our listeners did. Thank you very much for your time. I know our listeners appreciate it as well. And with that, I will pass it back to New York City, Mr. Connor.
1: Thanks, and thanks again for listening to this REORC Weekly Review. As always, find all of our podcasts on the Reorg Site Media page, iTunes, and SoundCloud, and we hope you and your families are healthy and safe.